As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Odd Lots listeners, it's Joe and Tracy here. We've got a couple of quick editor's notes for you. One is our recent guest, Craig Wiggins, misidentified the company Aurora as building to scale. That was around the 1454 mark in the cannabis episode. The correct company is Afria. And uh, one more note for you before we begin. We actually recorded this episode on the week of October 8th, and we refer to some events that were taking place that week, notably a pretty big market sell-off globally, but especially in China. Another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. So, Joe, I just want to double check, but uh, you realize that I've moved to Hong Kong, right? I not only am I aware of the fact that you've moved to Hong Kong, <laughs> I am incredibly jealous that you now live in Hong Kong because that's one of my favorite cities in the entire world with some of my favorite food. And I think I'm going to come out and visit you in a few weeks in Hong Kong. So I'm actually personally excited to benefit from the fact that uh, you moved out there. Yes. And I promise to take you to some amazing restaurants. Uh, But in the meantime, one of the most exciting things about being in Hong Kong has to be uh, writing about and observing the China story. And Hong Kong obviously is a special administrative region in its own right, but it's a good vantage point from which to observe everything that's been going on with the Chinese economy. And as you know, this is becoming more and more important given that uh, the U.S. seems to be on on the verge of a trade war with China. Wait, so we're not talking about Chinese food on today's episode? No, but we should we should probably do that. We should do a uh, Odd Lots food spinoff, but we're not doing that today. Today we're no, going but to... I agree. <laughs> Come on. No, no, I, I just just all jokes aside, I'm interested for reasons beyond the food. And you're absolutely right that it just feels like there's a moment where understanding what's going on in China feels particularly important. Right. And I should say uh, we're recording this in a week that's been particularly terrible for Chinese markets and Chinese assets. Uh, When I left the office today, the uh, Shanghai Composite was down something like 5%. Uh, Tencent, the big internet giant that we have here, had at one point dropped about 7.7%. 
so it really feels like Chinese markets are bearing the brunt of a lot of the trade war pressures. But beyond that, one thing I've learned just from being here for a few weeks is that, of course, there is this ongoing question about China's economic adjustment and whether or not uh, the aspirations of China's rulers, the Chinese Communist Party, are going to actually be compatible with modern capitalism. Right. It feels like with China, we're at the intersection of a short-term story and a long-term story. So the short-term story is maybe tensions with Trump, although that may turn into long-term. There's the market sell-off, other sort of things like that. And then the long-term, there's the efforts to restructure the economy, the effort to become really important in a bunch of big technological areas, which we've talked about before on the show. And so part of the question in my mind that I'm trying to wrap my head around is to what degree do the short-term pressures sort of stymie the long-term efforts? Right. That's actually a really good way of putting it, the intersection of a short-term and a long-term story. So we actually have the perfect guest to talk about this today. Not only is he a sort of a long-running China expert, but he might actually be the coolest economist that I know. The last time I saw him in person, he was wearing a leather jacket and jeans and he was on his way to Glastonbury. So um, pretty cool. I'm pretty excited. All right. So our guest uh, for this episode is George Magnus. He is now an independent economist. He is also research associate at the China Center at Oxford University and SOAS. He is also the author of a new book called Red Flags, all about the pressures facing China and its uh, ruling authorities. And he is the former chief economist at UBS. So, George, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, So, George, I guess just as an initial question, uh, maybe for our listeners, you could walk us through how you became a China expert in the first place. Yeah, sure. So I um, I think my first visit to China actually was in 1993 when I was a kind of a rookie foreign exchange economist at a, a UK merchant bank that went by the name of SG Warburg, uh, which later uh, was taken over by a Swiss Bank Corporation, which eventually merged with UBS. And uh, so that's uh, how I kind of became kind of ch- uh, chief economist at UBS. And then China was very then definitely not just the kind of a place that I used to go to pitch at the People's Bank of China and the State Administration of Foreign Exchange for for FX business, but also uh, a much more kind of meaningful uh, kind of investigations into what made the economy tick and so on. But I think my my big break, so to speak, came when actually I took a step away from management functions at UBS and uh, had much more time to look at serious issues like uh, what was going on in, you know, the financial crisis and subprime mortgages and uh, the economy on the other side of the world, which is which is China. And um, I really uh, have spent the last kind of 10 or 15 years, I'd say, uh, just trying to penetrate what is really a kind of a very opaque and still untransparent um, uh, economic and particularly political system. I feel like at best, I have I'm uh, I'm sort of a tourist when it comes to understanding China. I mean, I don't even know if I'm that good at understanding the U.S., but at no point have I ever felt like I had a particularly good grasp on what's really going on. I have some vague idea that 
They want to restructure their economy and that they have uh, overcapacity in some legacy industrial state-owned sectors. There are concerns about real estate bubbles, and they want to lead in tech. And when after I list off that, that I'm kind of coming to the end of my feel for the Chinese economy. What does it take to understand China? Is it repeated visits? Is it repeated conversations? Is it a granular understanding of the data beyond the headlines? Because I kind of feel like I'm not alone. I suspect many American commentators really have only the most vague sense of how the Chinese economy really works. Well, one, Joe, I think you're probably being rather modest. Um, two, I mean, it is quite a serious effort, really, to try to understand a country that basically doesn't really work in the same way that our Western economies work. But I, I would say that um, you know a good place to start is you. People need to understand a little bit about China's history and about how it got to where it is today. So. Obviously, during the early years of the People's Republic under Mao Zedong, um, I mean, China actually grew quite quickly, but it was uh, still a pretty impoverished place. Um, and nothing really changed in terms of its catch-up on the rest of the world until um, uh, Deng Xiaoping came to power in uh, the end of the 1970s, beginning of the 1980s. And then uh, then things started to really move because um, he, w- he was basically renowned, or certainly people attribute to him, uh, the phrase that, you know, I don't care if it's a black cat or a yellow cat, so long as it's a cat that catches mice. And that was the kind of his way of basically saying to the Communist Party that, you know, we have to be prepared to experiment with things that we haven't done before, particularly the marriage or the interaction between, you know, a state-run economic system and the use of market mechanisms. So people need to understand a little bit how that happened and uh, and also how we've kind of reached a point uh, now, uh, and I don't really mean in 2018, because I think this has been brewing for about five or six years, but it's a point that I call in the book the end of extrapolation, because whatever we thought we knew about China over the last 30 or 35 years, I don't think you can kind of extrapolate that on a, a spreadsheet and say, well, because it's done this for the last, you know, three or four decades, we think we can probably, you know, push this forward into the future. And this is what China will look like in 2030 or 2040 or 2050. Because I think it has reached that point where it needs a big makeover, a big transformation. And, you know, you don't have to take my word for it because in 2007 and 2011, so this is before Xi Jinping came to power. So this was when Hu Jintao and Wen Jibao were the president and the premier of China, respectively. And Wen Jibao notoriously said in, 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 bo- in both of these years that the Chinese economy was unstable and uncoordinated and unbalanced uh, and needed to, to change. And uh, even as recently as last year at the uh, 19th Party Congress, he said uh, that the economy was unbalanced and inadequate to meet the people's needs for a better quality of life. So everybody agrees, including the Chinese leadership, that it needs a transformation, it needs a makeover. And so what we're all trying to get to grips with, really, is how to try to understand what's required and whether uh, this government really has the wherewithal and the the nous to be able to to make it happen. So I have a sort of step back question, which is, do we have a good idea of where the Chinese government actually wants to get to? Like, is there a clear vision of what they want their economy to look like in 10 or 20 or 30 years? 
Yes, we do have an idea. Um, in fact, um, the the 13th five-year plan, which was which is now sort of actually getting towards the last couple of years of its of its kind of limit. Um, I mean, does lay out um, kind of guidelines and and signposts for how to develop China into a modern economy with uh, with modern industries and and moving away. Uh, from its kind of traditional reliance on heavy industry like steel and coal and chemicals um, to something that's uh, a little bit more familiar to us in terms of more service-producing industries, more consumer-oriented sectors and so on. And I was going to say the sexier bit, but actually what I mean is the kind of more interesting bit about China's vision really came about in 2016, so not that long ago, when um, AlphaGo, um, as many people may remember, beat uh, the the reigning world champion of the game Go. And this shocked the Chinese into basically saying, we want to be the world masters at artificial intelligence um, by, uh, tw- uh, by 2030. So... Uh, or 2035, and and in between time, they there was also a very um, important uh, industrial strategy called Made in China 2025, um, which happens to be uh, basically the butt of the White House's objections to China's uh, trade and industrial policies, and this sets out very clear quantitative top-down targets about China's aspirations to be where it wants to be in 10 key sectors like, um, you know, biomed and electric vehicles and green energy and so on uh, by 2025. So they definitely do have a a very clear top-down vision about what they want to achieve and the kind of the timescale on which they want to do that by. Um, but in a way, that's kind of the easy bit, right? You you can say, you know, uh, I want to be Superman, but you you don't really know how that's going to happen or what you need to do to make that happen. And, and this is kind of what we're all trying to disembowel, really, about Chinese policy at the moment. I hadn't realized that the AlphaGo victory was such a wake-up call moment. We had another episode where we talked about the Made in China 2025 But one question that I have, so you mentioned, okay, there was this incident. They're like, all right, we want to lead in AI. So they set out the national priority that we want to be a leader in artificial intelligence. What happens then? So they set the priority. What specifically do they do to implement it? Well, in the first place, it starts with, with, with targets, right? So they say that, you know, we want to be a world leader or we want to have market share of, you know, 65% or 70% or 75%, or, you know, we want to reduce our dependence on, um, you know, American semiconductor companies because we want to develop these industries ourselves. In fact, that happens to be a very live uh, issue for China, uh, particularly since the um, uh, incident that we had earlier this year when um, the United States uh, basically, uh, sort of, re- well, restrained uh, ZTE from being able to uh, to access products, and and that was subsequently uh, kind of softened up. It was a national security issue at the time over over uh, ZTE's relationships with with Iran. But the the it starts off really with you know the prioritization of Chinese companies uh, gaining or winning market share in specific industries and subsectors. And then there are is a whole raft of industrial policies 
that range from subsidies to tax benefits to um, the facilitation of, you know, university research departments with, um, uh, I mean, nominally private companies like, for example, Baidu and Tencent and um, and Alibaba and Xiaomi. So there are, you know, with all the kind of leading tech companies in, in China to, to basically help them along their way to achieve these targets. I mean, in a way, um, I mean, some of these companies are uh, private, or we think of them as private, but actually then they're kind of not private in the way that we think about private companies in the West, um, because the chief executives and the boards of these companies know precisely which side of the, you know, which side their, their bread is buttered on. And, um, you know, they wouldn't do anything to fall foul of the government. And they, um, they basically, you know, receive uh, benefits and, and, and uh, favors and uh, procurement um, uh, privileges from the government. So they are nominally private, but not kind of private as we think of them. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Um, so I want to zero in on the corporate story a little bit, uh, because on the day that we're recording this, uh, we did just see a, a very big sell-off in Chinese stocks. And it, it's kind of unusual. This came in the midst of a global sell-off, but it was a little bit surprising because Chinese stocks had already fallen by quite a lot uh, before today. They had really borne the brunt of some of the trade war concerns, so some people were surprised that they fell out of bed today as well. Um, what's going on here, and are Chinese companies as vulnerable to the trade war fears as the market seems to be implying? Well, uh, it, it's this this particular week in which we're doing this recording is it's been quite a little bit complicated because the the previous week the Chinese had been on holiday, so there's been a little bit of a catch up going on because uh, markets have been weaker. Uh, following very robust U.S. economic data and revised interest rate expectations, so there was a little bit of catch-up going on. But you're absolutely right, Tracy. I think the you know there's a there's an ongoing concern that even though the trade conflict hasn't really compromised the Chinese economy or Chinese companies in any material way as yet, and by the way. If it has, then it's probably been offset by the easing of uh, lending and interest rate and bank reserve policies that have been taken this year. But there is an ongoing feeling that cumulatively, the trade war will have an effect on the Chinese economy, aggravating what is already a slowing down in investment and to some degree also in the consumer sector as well. So, there is, um, for example, uh, quite close attention paid. It's always difficult to know what to make of it. But just as it is in the United States or in the EU, for example, um, people pay a lot of attention to the, the purchasing manager indices. Uh, these are kind of surveys of, um, of major companies and medium-sized companies. 
about sentiment uh, that are that come out usually at the first couple of trading days each month. And um, the the ones that came out at the beginning of uh, October, which is uh, now just about kind of eight, nine days away uh, behind us, were notable really because they were quite weak when they when you look at the curve of components that are about export orders okay that's kind of what we would expect to see if tariffs are starting to have an effect uh, they were quite weak um when it came to employment now that's quite important really because obviously the legitimate legitimacy of the communist party you know basically rests amongst other things but certainly importantly on um you know the achievement of sustainable growth in living standards and prosperity without interruption in which high levels of employment are, are really important so if the labor market is weakening then that's obviously something we need to kind of to pay some attention to um but there were other indications in these surveys that uh, that things are not going all that well um for the economy and and i think the trade conflict is something which you know cumulatively as i say will have an effect not only on the chinese economy but it might if it's protracted it might have an effect on the construction of supply chains and the location of businesses by foreign companies who may feel that it is judicious to diversify or move some activities out of china so so these things could be cumulatively quite important George, I want to talk more about the trade war tensions in a second, but Tracy started off her question asking about the stock market. And something that I'm always sort of curious about is how important is the stock market in China? And I ask because I think it's very important here for a number of reasons in the U.S. because uh, a decent part of the population owns stocks. It is uh, a rising stock market can spur more investment as people want to uh, flip startups onto the public market. There's all kinds of reasons to watch the U.S. stock market as a decent barometer for other bigger trends in the U.S. economy. Does the Chinese stock market play that same role or is it not as good of a gauge into what's going on? No, I mean, it isn't as good a gauge. Uh, I mean, it's it's not widely owned by Chinese households in the way that stocks are held uh, either directly or through uh, 401k plans or other forms of pension assets. So ownership by citizens of the Chinese equity market is is not wide. And um, it des- doesn't have the same kind of role in terms of um, equity rate, capital raising for companies and, and, and wealth ownership as it does in, in, in the United States, for example. I don't really think it has the kind of economic effect um, or can have the kind of galvanizing or destructive economic effect that it might do in, in Western countries. So I guess I'm curious, but if you were to characterize the Chinese economy at the moment, uh, how would you do so? Is it strong? Is it weak? Is it going through a transition period? What does it actually look like to you? I think it's definitely uh, going through a transition, I would say, Tracy. I mean, it's um, it's it's yet another transformation. You know, it's waiting to happen. But we don't really know what the end game is going to look like. So the 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 basic transformation is from a country or an economy that has become far too dependent on credit creation to keep growing, far too uh, 
in which misallocation of resources and misallocation of lending has featured all too prominently and which needs to basically restructure um, away from its um, overly heavy dependence on um, capital investment and, and credit to a greater reliance on more open service producing industries and um and and the consumer so this is the kind of transition which the, the chinese call it rebalancing so th- this is the kind of transformation china's got to try to go through but it's very very early days and uh we're already starting to run into a few issues with the whole deleveraging cycle which began with great seriousness at the end of 2016 i think the chinese leadership became very cognizant of the fact that they could not carry on um, with this sort of overly um, heavy dependence on credit creation. Um, And they've been partially successful in limiting the growth of lending to companies and in cleaning up some of the more egregious forms of risk in funding of that lending. In other words, through overnight and very, very short maturity deposits in the interbank market and through products that have become known as wealth management products. So they've been quite quite adept at doing that up to a point. But at the same time, they haven't really been able to get a a strong grip on containing the growth of debt by local governments, um, which are really important uh, uh, agents in the economy. Uh, And household debt, which previously was actually rather tame, uh, is now on a bit of a tear. In fact, the ratio of household debt to income in China, uh, as of about June of 2018, was almost 120%. So, you know, it's a mixed scorecard. And during the course of this year, 2018, we've seen lots of exhortations by the Uh, People's Bank of China and the regulatory agencies to banks to lend more to export companies, to small companies, um, to local governments to spend more on infrastructure or issue more bonds to fund infrastructure. Um, Reserve requirements for banks have been cut four times. Interest rates have come down. So there's kind of accumulating evidence that actually the Chinese authorities don't really like the consequences of deleveraging. And of course, it's not a good thing, you know, to have to put your economy through a ringer uh, to to wash, you know, leverage out of the system. But if you don't do it when times are good, you have to do it when times are bad. And, and, And the worry is that if the authorities are now kind of backing away from deleveraging a little bit, that it just exacerbates the problem down the road and it defers the rebalancing for uh, a long a long time to come. So how much of this pause on rebalancing or these exhortations to banks to lend more and to continue the credit-driven growth model, how much are they in response to uh, trade war-led slowdown and thus sort of the, you know, sort of gets at the question of whether the tensions with the U.S. and other parts of the world are sort of disrupting the long-term plans. Yeah, my my view is I, I don't think the trade conflict um, to date uh, has really had a, a marked effect on what the authorities probably think is going on in the economy. And, and if it has had any effect, it's probably been compensated for by the easing of 
monetary and financial policy, including, by the way, the depreciation of, of the yuan, which has dropped by about 8% since the spring, pretty much offsetting the the latest round of, of 10% tariffs, which uh, the White House announced um, in um, September or early October, uh, for the moment at least. But I think it will become a bigger issue, particularly as the tariffs go up to 25% on the 1st of January uh, 2019. And also, if uh, President Trump decided to broaden the implementation of punitive tariffs to the whole of uh, imports from China. Right, George, I wanted to ask you about this, because uh, when we talk about the things that China could possibly do to offset a slowdown in its economy, there are a couple of things that that usually come up. you know, one of them is always the U.S. Treasury issue. Uh, China owns a lot of U.S. Treasuries. They're a major creditor to the U.S. And there's this uh, underlying theory that at some point they could possibly sell off those holdings, basically to um, make a point about U.S. policy. Uh, And then there's also the renminbi issue that you just alluded to. They could always devalue their currency, either in an obvious or a slightly more uh, stealthy way. Uh, But there's also a greater fear that maybe at some point China might try to overturn the U.S. dollar's supremacy in the global financial system. How realistic are either of those threats? Well, I mean, to the extent that anybody can predict how things are going to evolve, um, uh, I think the Chinese would give them both very, very serious thought from the point of view of, do we really want to do this with all the consequences that they would entail? Because actually both of these policies, which, uh, so either selling US treasuries or and or allowing the the yuan or the renminbi to depreciate much more uh, aggressively, um, would be causes of self-harm and uh, domestic instability, I think. So the, the Treasury issue is an old chestnut. We've been here many, many times before uh, in the last kind of five to seven years. And um, we should remember a couple of things. One is that the Chinese have a great deal of pride in their foreign exchange reserves. So they, I mean, they did peak out at about $4 trillion dollars in 2014, they're now kind of hovering at around three trillion. So I, I don't think they would treat this very lightly. Um, and I think that um, there's no guarantee that selling US treasuries uh, would actually achieve the results that they would want other than just to make the White House really angry. Uh, so. During 2015, 2016, when the Chinese were going through a mini financial crisis, when they were going through this, they they bled about five to seven hundred billion dollars worth of of U.S. dollar reserves, uh, without really impacting the Treasury market at all. Um, okay, so we could say that times were different then because the Fed wasn't raising rates and the economy wasn't as strong. And so, if China did sell its Treasury holdings or some of its Treasury holdings now. They would do. They would be doing so into a falling market when you know people expect the Fed to keep on raising rates and so on. That's true. So it could have 
you know, a more significant effect. But I think it's it's like, what happens if the first $500 billion worth of sales don't work? You know, do they keep on doing this? I mean, there is a level of reserves below which they will clearly not want to go. Um, and I think it's quite dangerous because it's um, it, it, it could quite easily trigger uh, un, uh, well instability and, and lack of confidence uh, in Chinese financial markets and actually induce capital outflows at a time when they're trying to stop that happening. The same applies with the uh, currency depreciation. So I think at the moment, it's quite uh, ironic, really, but uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin has basically um, said a few things uh, during the IMF meetings going on in Bali about, um, you know, China's manipulation of the currency and so on and so forth. If the Chinese actually did float their currency, it would probably drop like a stone. And I think at the moment, the Chinese are doing whatever they can to basically keep it from depreciating. Politically, of course, they could change that policy. They could decide that um, if the tariffs are going up as are scheduled to do, and because of the uh, impacts of the domestic economy and tariffs and trade conflict and so on, that if they wanted to compensate by depreciating the renminbi much more aggressively, that they could allow a depreciation of maybe 5, 10, 15%, something like that. It would be unprecedented, I would say, in, in certainly in recent times. And I think it would also be highly destabilizing for China, for emerging markets, for China's rhetoric about wanting to be the leader of globalization as the United States retreats. So none of this stuff would really work if China were seen to be, you know, embarking on a competitive devaluation. Would it happen politically anyway? It's possible. I don't think we can rule it out, but it's not really something that I think China's leaders who are quite cautious and they, they do crave stability. I don't think they would be very aggressive in, in uh, allowing that to happen. Depreciation was probably going to happen anyway, but I would say it'll be measured. George, you mentioned earlier that you do think we're in for a protracted U.S.-China trade war. There seem to be two dimensions to the U.S.-China tension. So the president, when he talked, and I'm talking about the U.S. president, President Trump now, when he talks about China, he, he tends to focus a lot on the uh, the bilateral trade deficit and wanting to balance out the numbers. And that's usually how he seems to think about the world. And most people, uh, many mainstream economists don't give him a lot of credit for that viewpoint, fairly or unfairly. On the other hand, there is a more sort of sophisticated and widespread backing for the idea that something must be done to sort of counter China's industrial policy, that things like the forced transfer of technology are patently unfair and, at least in spirit, violate the rules of free trade, and that something must be done to sort of uh, counter what we were talking about earlier, the, uh, the Made in China 2025 initiative and various endeavors by the country to become a dominant player in these industries. Ultimately, is there a path, in your view, for China to continue its technological and industrial pursuits, which might be a little bit more qualitative, and also satisfy uh, the demands of the U.S. Is there a is there a middle ground, or are these sort of fundamentally uh, diametrically opposed goals? <laughs> well, um, uh, I mean, they are pretty fundamental uh, on both sides, actually, and it's quite difficult, I think, to see how um, 
either side could actually back down and um, and say that their goals have been met because that would not be the case. And certainly, you know, China will not contemplate actually any kind of intrusion on what it would regard as its sovereign right to have whatever industrial policies it deems to be appropriate. Um, and at the same time, you know, the United States uh, has clearly recognised that, you know, China as an adversary in technological matters, but also closely related that to military matters and the industrial policies that underlie both of those narratives, really. This is a serious issue where, you know, you can't really compromise. And, and I think I think in some respects, I think we we should, you know, basically say that whatever we think about tariffs is a policy or as a tool, but the, the, the concept of actually calling China out on some of its practices actually is, is certainly a defensible position. So is there a middle ground? Well, obviously the atmospherics would have to calm down first. Um, I imagine, um, uh, you know, and I'm just guessing here, but I imagine that um, in the end, the United States will accept that it cannot change uh, China's industrial policy, um, but the Chinese may eventually decide that there are certain things that they could do about intellectual property uh, protection, about market access. And I don't, don't just mean rhetoric, which is kind of what we largely get um, after, you know, meetings between senior officials or, or used to get them when they were having meetings. But uh, IPR protection, market access, a willingness to engage and to see where there might be some kind of mutual advantages in uh, in agreeing on you know different types of uh, concessions for uh, for industries i mean i think that i think the technological and military issues are existential i think it would be a mistake for either side to kind of to back off so to speak and i think you know probably america's uh, and the west's best kind of hope of countering china is actually is to invest more in you know technological leadership to counter but I think there, I think, I hope there would be a middle ground where, you know, both sides are prepared to kind of back off a little bit and, and compromise. I mean, that's the only way you get to the middle ground. Um, but I think the atmospherics have to cool down a lot from where they are at the moment, which is, which is pretty feisty. So, George, you mentioned the E word, existential questions, um, basically. I have an existential question, which is that I, I'm acutely aware that all three of us are outsiders basically peeking into the Chinese system um, in varying degrees. Obviously, you have a better uh, vantage point than either Joe or I do. But I, I, I'm wondering, we've had Western commentators who've been warning about pressures on the Chinese economy for decades now and people talking about how the debt-fueled growth is going to collapse. We've seen the Chinese economy struggle at various times, but we've been pretty far off of a collapse. So I, I guess my question is, to what degree should we think about Chinese exceptionalism when it comes to the economy? Is there a way that China can actually buck uh, what we think are intrinsic rules that that take place when uh, when economies operate. Uh, so the answer to that is, um, is, I mean, it's a typical kind of economics answer, isn't it? It's sort of yes and no. So 
there there are bits of Chinese exceptionalism, if you want to call it that, which I think we 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 do have to recognise, and it's why a lot of the kind of the calls that sometimes have been made in the last kind of five or ten years about you know uh, it's about to collapse, it's about to implode, etc., have persistently proved wrong, and that is because the Chinese have a very uh, kind of marked system of control and have and can deploy tools. Um, which most Western governments can't, simply because of the role of the state and the role of the party in the economy. So uh, I, you know, I mean, I've spoken before myself about the possibility that China would kind of come to what a lot of people have kind of now colloquially call a Minsky moment, which is a sort of a point where leverage becomes far too high and causes some kind of financial policy or financial system reaction. And um, uh, I mean, I think it is at that point, but I don't think it's different from the rest of us. And I don't think this is a, a charge about, you know, you Westerners, you think about things in a different way. I don't think that really holds water because the the misallocation of resources from excessive reliance on credit has to be paid for uh, one day um, <clears throat> by consumers, by governments, by creditors by companies um you know whatever the system of uh, governance you have whether it's a kind of a free market system or whether it's a, a state controlled system and what we call kind of financial deepening which is when you know financial assets and liabilities grow at a multiple a big multiple of the rate of growth of the economy for years and years on end that cannot go on ad nauseam without giving rise to bubbles, speculation, and financial risk. And I, I honestly believe that this is the point that China is at. When I say at the moment, I don't mean, you know, in October or November 2018, but, you know, for the, for the moment, meaning for the next couple of years, two or three years. And, and that what the most likely manifestation of all of this as it gets resolved is a protracted period of much lower economic growth than we've been accustomed to. That's the big call in my view. It's possible that China could have a a, a much bigger financial crisis. Um, uh, if you think about, you know, our own 10 years ago, um, something along those lines, I think it's less likely because I don't think China will allow any major banks or financial institutions to go bust. And so the likelihood is that there'll be repression, financial repression, and um, they'll basically sit on and try to kind of evergreen uh, the bad loans and the misallocated lending for as long as possible. But, you know, not even centrally controlled economies can do that uh, in perpetuity. So my feeling is this has all been building up. A lot of people have had premature calls of collapse and the calls for collapse themselves have been wrong. But, you know, that there will be a payback for all of this, I think, is inevitable, China or not. George, I want to ask one real quick question before we go. So Tracy mentioned at the beginning that you go to uh, festivals like Glastonbury, the music festivals, but I'm sure you also go to lots of conferences and panels where elite thinkers and bankers and economists gather and talk about serious issues. And I'm curious, when they look at what's going on in the U.S. with our political paralysis and our president, and they look at what's going on in the U.K., dealing with Brexit. And then they look at China with these 
multi-year plans and this extraordinary investment into things like clean energy and artificial intelligence. Have you sensed a swing in terms of sort of elite viewpoint about the merits of a more centrally planned system? Oh, I think that's definitely, uh, it's a good question. And I think that's definitely uh, something that has, or, you know, has worked its way into public discussion and political debate. Well, I would say it, it's not, you know, look, the Chinese have this great model, you know, let's just copy it. I don't think, uh, I don't think I hear a lot of that. But I do hear a lot of debate now about where should the lines be between what we think the private sector is capable and willing to do and where we think the government or public authorities need to step in to make things happen or to facilitate uh, things happening more quickly. But I do think that people have just kind of looked at our own experience in uh, the financial crisis and the build-up to it and since, and looked at the alternative kind of governance systems, which obviously we see all around us now, um, and a lot of governments and uh, countries have basically flirted with or, or done more than flirtation with autocratic forms of government and and started to sort of ask questions about, you know, where those red lines should be and should we be a bit more accommodative about what uh, the role of, of the state or the role of public uh, sector agencies might be in trying to deliver better outcomes that we all kind of want. All right, uh, George Magnus, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. Fascinating discussion. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today. That was George Magnus, the author of Red Flags, Why She's China is in Jeopardy. Thank you. So, Joe, I I thought that was a really interesting conversation about the future of China and uh, your question at the very end about whether or not China's exceptionalism has kind of caused some people to think about the benefits of uh, Western democracy is sort of spot on. It feels like there's just sort of this uh, pendulum of ideas that swings back and forth and we're at this period where a lot of elites and intellectuals and economists in the West are fairly disgusted by what they see in the U.S. And they sort of yearn for uh, some of the more directed economic approaches that they see in China, particularly when it comes to investment in technology. But I always, you know, like I said, it it feels like it's a pendulum and that maybe I don't know whether we've swung all the way to one side but I don't think that it'll stay that way forever. And at some point, it'll probably swing back in the other direction. Well, I, I will say that any China bull that you talk to in Hong Kong, one of the big components of their China bull argument is usually China is a command economy and it's able to order a bunch of people around or pull a bunch of levers to engineer the outcome that it wants, which is something that you never hear about in Western societies. No, absolutely not. But then again, in five years, we might be hearing uh, China is a command economy and uh, technology never flourishes when there's not more market competition and they're going to misallocate and pick winners and losers wrong. So, you know, what they say today about how China is able to stave off downturns and all this stuff, it may not be what they say five years from now. 
Yeah, but it does feel like we're getting to a bit of a crunch point where whatever happens over the next two or three years is going to bolster someone's argument one way or another, right? Tracy, when I come to visit you, can we uh, go across and uh, go into China or will that not work out? Uh, well, we can try. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you. Yeah, it'll be good. Uh, there will be lots of Chinese food, I promise. All right. On that note, this has been another episode of the Odd Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow George on Twitter. He's at GeorgeMagnus1. And definitely follow our producer, Topher Forges. He's at ForgesT, as well as the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.